You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? We're going to spend one Sunday studying this amazing book, and if you don't have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 on page 1007 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Hebrews chapter 10. Well, happy anniversary, Ascend Church. Today we celebrate 13 years of God's faithfulness. I'm looking down in the front row and I see Rick. Rick has been with us since the folding chairs days when we were just talking about what God's church could be here at Ascend. I also saw Julie up here on the worship team. She was part of that early days of sitting in folding chairs. And so many of you have been parts of those 13 years, and I'm so grateful. We have been doing church for 13 years. And doing church has included seasons of sweet, celebrated times of clear understanding of God's favor. We have also included some seasons of challenge, some seasons of moving from having a building to being mobile. Who does that? Seasons of not being able to find a place where we could celebrate a permanent structure of of worship and then finding this land and then building this building and and then these seasons of, you know, sometimes we sit around around our staff table and our staff meetings and we look at the church calendar and we say, let's do this on this particular day. But we understand the choice to do a fall fest, an anniversary, and three services all on the same weekend might not have been the the best choice in the history of our 13 years, but you've done it. And our, our church has been phenomenal. Katie and her team did a phenomenal job yesterday. I I was amazed to see so many kids coming in, not just from our church, but from the community and their their smiling faces. And I think we did a bait and switch. They they came to a church yesterday and saw bouncy houses and then came today and they're like, "Where, where are the bouncy houses? But we are giving them cookie dough. So parents, you can thank us later. Um, But we have an amazing team. We, we, We had volunteers yesterday making sure that there was safety, making sure that all the needs were met. We, we have volunteers today, although I don't like using that word because our volunteers are actually leaders. They're, they're servants of the Most High God. But we've had people here early opening the doors, making sure we had people in the parking lots, making sure our kids this morning are getting the gospel planted and watered in their hearts and minds. We had a worship team that got here especially early, a production team. And I think it's appropriate for us to just thank them through applause. Can we thank them? Your ability to come in and enjoy a worship service and my ability to do the same is because of the investment of our church family. And so much for us to celebrate on our 13th anniversary. But, but church, for all of us, is a unique experience. In fact, for some of you, it might be what most of us have experienced, and that is that church for many years of my life 
was a, a topic of something I had to do. Growing up, I had to go to church. And in our growing up years, we have a lot of activities that are have to do, don't we? We, we have to brush our teeth. We have to eat vegetables. I, th- I agree with Ben Shapiro. I think vegetables are part of the curse from God. We had to make our bed. We had to go to school. But, but as you get older and become adult, you, you realize all of those have-to activities actually had benefit, didn't they? And I think the same thing is true for us with the topic of church. As we grow up or as we are new to the Christian faith, church is something we have to do. But as we grow and mature, it, it moves. And that one word changes from having to do it to getting to do it, doesn't it? And, and what I hope this morning I'm going to do is we, we, we pause and we focus on Hebrews, next week, Lord willing, we'll be back in Revelation, and I can't wait. But today, what I hope to do is to prove to you that church is something we get to do, not because of something I've come up with, not because of some marketing campaign our leaders have developed, but instead, something that Christ has done. In fact, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, is going to highlight Three things that Christ has done that if we will own these, we will actually view church as something we get to do. And we'll actually do church the way he intends. The big idea in your notes is this. The realization of what Christ has done makes engagement with church a matter of get to rather than have to. Let me read these verses, and then we'll unpack them together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, I just have to stop and say, that's something that's easy for us to just quickly move past. But for the original audience, and I hope for us after studying it, we will realize the significance of this statement. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing Near. The first thing that Christ has done for us moves us to, number one, confidently draw near. What Christ has done for us 
moves us to get to confidently draw near. Look at the first word of verse 19. By the way, friends, if you are new to the Christian faith, if you're relatively new to the Bible, what we do here every week is expository preaching. What expository preaching is, is taking this ancient text and understanding it the way the original author intended for the original audience. That's the right way to study God's Word. We don't study God's Word first asking, what does it mean to me? We don't study God's Word first asking, where am I in the Bible? We, we study God's Word by first asking, what did the original author mean to the original audience? And so what we do here is model how we study God's Word in this way. And so if you're new to the Christian faith, if you're new to the Bible, you might come away from a sermon here at, the, at Ascend maybe being overwhelmed. But, but my counsel to you is look for one thing that you learn about God. Look for one thing that you learn about us as human beings. Look for one thing that you learn about God's plan for redemptive history. And if you'll do that every Sunday and then next Sunday and then next Sunday and you begin to own that, you'll begin to understand God's word the way he intended it. And you'll be able to see the incredible value this book has for our everyday life. The, the first word is therefore. And when you study the New Testament or any book of the Bible and you see that word, what it does is it draws our attention to look at what has come previously. And so let's look back at Hebrews 10 and verse 1. The author says, for since the law, what he's referring to here is the Mosaic law. The majority of the first five books of the Bible unpack the Mosaic law. It was the law that God gave to his people Israel so that they could live in a way that would be different than the surrounding nations. They could live in a way that drew their attention to the uniqueness of their God. They could live in a way that would actually demonstrate that they had a life of faith. So it says, for since the law has but a shadow a shadow is something that somehow represents the substance. When the sun shines upon a substance, what we see is a shadow. It somehow shows the outline. It somehow shows us an indication of what the sun is shining on. But the shadow is never intended to be the substance. It's intended to point us to the substance. So what the author is saying in Hebrews 10.1, is that the Mosaic law, all of the sacrifices, all of the festivals, all of the circumcision and the requirements and the commands were all serving the purpose of being a shadow, pointing us to the substance. And we'll get to what the substance is here in just a moment. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So see, it's pointing us to something in the future. Instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what the author of Hebrews is saying 
to those original audience Jews is remember. Remember the law, remember the commands, remember the festivals, but, but, but most of all, remember the sacrifices. Remember the killing of animals and the shedding of blood, and, and that draws our attention back to the, the beginning of the Bible. In fact, would you turn back to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3 begins to help us understand the therefore of our passage this morning. God's original design in creation was that human beings would dwell with him in a perfect way. In fact, listen to this. God designed human beings to dwell unhindered, pure and perfect in their fellowship between God and man. That was God's original design. And we see that in Genesis 3.8 with a verb that said that the Lord God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. There, there was a, an intimate fellowship, an unhindered fellowship. God was walking and talking to Adam and Eve in a perfect way. Don't you wish you could have been there? We actually are there in a sense. I'll get to that in a moment. Genesis 3, though, is the fall of human beings. That is when Adam and Eve took the fruit that was forbidden them and actually ate it, trying to be like God. And so at that point, there was sin. At that point, the fellowship was broken. At that point, the perfection turned imperfect. And so there was a problem that required a solution. The solution, interestingly, was shedding blood. In fact, it says at the end of Genesis 3 that the Lord God made clothes out of animal skin. Now, I don't know about you and how much you know about animals, but typically they don't let their skin go very easily. <laughs> so what this means is that the Lord God actually killed an animal so that Adam and Eve could have clothes. Then when we move to Genesis 4, we see that Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of the flock, and he brought a sacrifice of the first fruits of his flock, which meant an animal had to be killed. In Genesis 8, after the flood, we see that Noah set up an altar and killed clean animals. Abraham, in Genesis 12, built an altar, an altar killed animals. And so you can see, that from the beginning, there is this expectation by God that the only way that human beings could be, get back to a place of dwelling with him is the shedding of blood. In fact, you can write down Leviticus 1 through 7, Leviticus, the book where Bible reading plans go to die. Oh, but I love Leviticus because of this. Leviticus 1 through 7 tells us a lot about goats being killed, bulls being killed, entrails being waved, blood being spilt and sprinkled on the altars. 
blood being put on the lobes of the ears of the priests. Why? Because the imagery shows that original audience what is required in order for us to have access to the God of the universe. And then you can write down Leviticus 16, one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, if you're to look at the book of Leviticus and think of it as a chiasm, as an an X, that the center of it is most important, Leviticus 16 is the center of that X, of that chiasm, and it draws our attention to the significance of one day out of the year for Israel called the Day of Atonement. And you're like, Pastor, when are you going to get back to Hebrews? In just a moment. The Day of Atonement was so important. You see, in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a section called the Most Holy Place. And it was most holy because of this. You can write this down. Because God's presence dwelt there. God's presence was in the Ark of the Covenant. And so this one section of the tabernacle, this one section of the temple was divided by a curtain. We read that, didn't we, in Hebrews 10? And the only access that a human being could have to God's presence in that most holy place was limited to one person on one day. And the high priest would have to go through this process of consecrating himself, of bathing, of washing, of preparing. And at the bottom of his robes were bells, and there was a rope that was tied to him. Because if somehow he entered that holy place in an imperfect way, he would die immediately, and they would have to drag him out. He would go into this holy place with the blood of the bull and the goat that he had sacrificed. And there was this whole process of sprinkling the blood on these devices in the most holy place. And then he would come out and he would actually have to take his robe off and take a bath. And all of this process in Leviticus 16 was required on one day to one person so that human beings could actually be in the presence of God. That's a lot, isn't it? And generation after generation, priest would do this and die. And another priest would do it and die. And another priest would do it and die and over and over and over so that human beings could have access to the presence of God all because of our sin. Now we get to Hebrews 10. And it says, therefore, look at the imagery, therefore, since we have confidence To enter the most holy place. What? Again, remember, for a Jew to hear this after all of those generations of blood, blood, blood. And one man, one day, one time access. To have confidence to enter the most holy place. One thing I didn't tell you is that Leviticus 16 Follows Leviticus 10, and that was when the sons of Levi, or the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, were immediately killed because they didn't follow God's prescription to be in his presence. 
How can we have confidence for such an interaction like this? You know, I don't know about you, but if you're having an event in the future that you know there's great risk with it, we don't usually grow in our confidence as we approach that day, do we? A couple weeks ago, I had a procedure at a hospital where I was having to get put under. And I'll tell you, number one, I do not like hospitals. Number two, I despise needles. Despise them. And the third thing is, I don't like to be put under because I know I'm going to be unconscious. And as that day approached, I got to tell you, my confidence was not increasing, my anxiety was. And so when we go back to the Old Testament, we understand the significance of what the author is describing. To have access to the most holy place involved great risk. And that's actually what the word confidence means. It means to have boldness despite great risk. You know what's also interesting about this word? Is it also means to have authentication. Or credentials. Watched a little bit of football yesterday. M-I-Z. Sorry, K-State fans. You know what's fascinating is that there were a lot of football players and coaches on the sidelines, but there were also people that were dressed like you and me. They had to have something around their neck, though, didn't they? The only way you could have access to the sidelines is if you had credentials. And what this is saying is that in a, a situation of great risk, we can actually have great boldness and confidence because we have credentials. And so as we're approaching this most holy place that Nadab and Abihu died because they didn't have credentials, they didn't use the right credentials, that one man on one day had to only have credentials we actually can have confidence to approach this place having been given credentials. And, and, and what are those credentials? Well, look at the end of verse 19. Your credentials, beloved, that is hanging around your neck is the blood of Christ. Oh, that's awesome. If we were Baptists, we would say, Amen. You see the significance of this. After all these generations, because of the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, and because of our sin, no one could access the presence of God in any meaningful way unless there was shedding of blood. And now you and I, as human beings in the 21st century, can have confidence to approach the most holy place, the presence of God, because of the blood and so because of this, what does the author say in verse 22? Let us draw near. Since Christ, let us draw near. The word draw near is so interesting in the original language. If we think about this from an English standpoint, we think about drawing near as I, as an active observer, approach a reference point. So if I'm standing over here and that pulpit is the reference point, drawing near from my perspective is I am approaching this pulpit. But that's not what the original word means. It actually is the imagery of me drawing near and the pulpit drawing near to me. Isn't that awesome? It's reciprocal. 
Jesus does not just wait as the great priest of the house of God and say, come on, keep coming. He actually draws near to us as we draw near to him. So what I love about this is that as we think about church, which is being in the presence of God, as we think about church and what the rest of the New Testament says about making disciples of Jesus Christ, as we think about church and we think about what Christ has done for us, then the expectation is we don't have to draw near, we get to draw near. So how do we do that? Well, three ways. I'd encourage you to write this down, first of all, with sincerity of our hearts. Do you see the phrase there in verse 22, with true hearts? It means we confess our sins on a regular basis. Do you, do you have a pattern of that in your life? We don't confess our sins to get saved. That's not the point. We confess our sins to acknowledge that we are depending on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We didn't come in today corporately as a group of people because we had some right on our own. We don't read the Bible flippantly coming into the presence of God because of some right we have on our own. We don't pray to the God of the universe and know that he hears us because of some right that we have on our own. And so because of our sin, we need blood and so the, the true heart is our active rhythm of remembering our sin. But then second of all, verse 22 says, the assurance of our faith. It's an unwavering trust in this sacrifice of Christ. This is what we depend on. We are Christians not because we're Americans. We're Christians not because we grew up in a Christian family, if you had the privilege of doing that. We're, we're not Christians because we attend a church. We are Christians because of the blood of Christ. And so because of that, we have an unwavering trust, a full assurance of our faith, not because of us, but the completed work of Christ. But then verse 22 also says, our, our bodies washed by the pure water. Now, I agree with most commentators that this is partly a reference to actual baptism. Why? Not because baptism saves us, but because baptism is a tremendous resource and tool for us as human beings to be stretched and to be bold and to do something publicly to reflect what's happened already inside of ourselves. And that stretches most of us. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we had baptisms here. In fact, wasn't it last week? I'm getting old. <laughs> Almost everybody that I've talked to before the baptism service is nervous. They're nervous about being up here. They're nervous about being in water. They're nervous that we won't pull them up, which we've not lost anybody yet. <laughs> yet. But everyone is typically nervous. That, that reminds us that baptism is to, to stretch us, to give us a boldness, to stand before our church family and say, I'm unashamed to tell you what Christ has already done for us. But it's not just the waters of baptism. It's also this. It's an ongoing submission to the Holy Spirit. That's what drawing near is. 
is an ongoing submission to the Holy Spirit, to his conviction, to his comfort, to his teaching us through the word of God. And we show that by our engagement in the local church. I'll show you that here in just a moment. So because of what Christ has done for us, of course we draw near to him. But here's the second part of the outline, because it's a personal question. But are you cleansed? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Friend, it requires a response from you. It's not enough for Christ to have sacrificed his body and shed his blood on the cross and rose from the grave. You must respond to that. And your response is submission. Your response is agreement. Your response is surrender. Your response is repentance. If you've never done that, please do that right now. Don't wait till the end of the service. Admit that God is holy. Admit that you are a sinner that cannot save yourself. Admit that this shedding of blood by Christ is sufficient to save you. And and, and as best as you know how, give your life to Christ by turning from your sins. We'll, We'll have members of our prayer team at the ends of the platform after the service. They would love to be able to celebrate your commitment and point you in the direction of growth and maturing in your newfound faith. So since Christ has paid the penalty, since Christ has shed his blood, of course we draw near if you are cleansed. Number two, Christ has given us a tremendous gift that we must hold fast, and that is holding fast to true doctrine. Holding fast to true doctrine. We see a couple verbs in verse 23 of holding fast and being unwavering. And and listen to this quote. Nothing is more important than the ideas we believe. Do you believe that? Nothing shapes the way that we live and nothing is more important to the Christian life than the content of the faith we profess. Content, beloved. Doctrine. Beloved, hold fast. There's a lot of things we hold fast to in our lives, aren't there? There there are things from our childhood that we hold fast to. Traditions, that's why, you know, in marriage, after the honeymoon, the first holiday is usually going to, just set your watch, going to be the most significant moment of conflict in a new marriage. Because in our family, we had the Terrell traditions, which are the right traditions, and then these Morris traditions over here. See, I can say this because she's not in the front row. (laughs) And they collide. Because I had had 18 years of enjoying what my parents had done, and and a lot of what my parents had done, and what their parents had done. and, And we start to have this loyalty, and we hold fast, and we're unwavering to that, don't we? We hold fast to teachings of our favorite pastors. I, I had a, some friends in, in the church who sent me some, an email this week, and I so appreciate that. Please send me emails. If there's something that I preach and you say, I don't know about that, and I'm struggling with that, send an email. I, lo- I love that dialogue. We, we were dialoguing about a doctrine, and they brought up one, one of their, their favorites. I believe this is one of their favorites, but Dr. David Jeremiah, and I've been ministered to so much by his ministry. Others of you have brought quotes 
by R.C. Sproul and John Piper and John MacArthur. And those are, those are great. But you know, sometimes I think we, we hold fast to those more than we hold fast to what this passage is talking about. We hold fast to what maybe a professor or a mentor has taught us. We, we hold fast. And there are things in our lives that we hold fast to. But, but what the author of Hebrews is saying, which if we were going through Hebrews, maybe someday we will. I'll tell you who I think the author is, but it's not important for right now. The, the author of Hebrews is telling us to hold fast to something within the church. You see what it says? Hold fast the. You say, well, that's not what's important, but it is. Because in the original language, when there's an article, it means something specific. So look at the text. It says, let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession. Do you see the word? In the Greek, it's a compound word, Homo, which means same, legia, which means word or something spoken. So same word, same doctrine, that's what the confession is. Same what? What is the same? It's the same that us, it's the same political party, it's the same denomination. No, it's the same word of the one who's promised. You see it in the text? See, what I'm trying to do is show you that the points that I'm making are anchored in this word. We hold fast to what the one who promised, who is faithful, has said to us. That's the word of God. See, see, the gift that Christ has given to us is absolute truth. What a gift! A gift that has held up no matter what the king is of the land. No matter what empire is in power. No matter what theories and philosophies and polls and surveys come and go. This truth has held up and it will continue to. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a gift? And if you've lived long enough, haven't you seen the opinions of man change? Haven't you seen the authorities that be change? Haven't you seen to science change? We have been gifted by Christ, the confession. Now, why do I say Christ? Well, first of all, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the what? The word. But also, you can write down Luke 24, 22. You can write down John 5, 39. You can write down 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I think it's verses 19 through 22. And what do those passages tell us? They tell us that every page of Scripture, every paragraph of Scripture, every word of Scripture is intended to point us to Christ. That's awesome. On the road to Emmaus, the two disciples are talking about the historical events that had just taken place, and Jesus is before them, and he walks them through the Old Testament, showing them how it all points to Christ. 
John 5, 39, Jesus says to the experts on the word of God, the experts on the Old Testament, he says, you search this scripture because you think that in it you find salvation. It is they that point to me. What a gift. If you're exploring the claims of Christianity, if you're not familiar with this book that I'm preaching from, I'm I'm, I'm telling you what the purpose of it is, and that is Christ. That's how you can study Ezekiel and Lamentations and Leviticus and see the value in it. That's how we can study Psalms like we did this summer and see that it points us to Christ. That's how when we get back to Revelation, we'll see that the whole point of Revelation is not charts and timelines, it's how do we engage with this? Well, three ways. Number one, we have to own it ourselves. You have to own God's word yourself. If you want to be able to hold fast, unwavering, don't depend on John MacArthur. Don't depend on Pastor Jeff. Don't depend on podcasts. Don't depend on small group leaders. Yes, those are tools and they're resources, but the holding fast and the unwavering is you owning it. And how do you own it? Listen, develop a Genesis through Revelation defense of your beliefs. That's awesome that you can give me a verse. That's awesome that you're memorizing Scripture. But when we truly hold fast, unwavering to this confession, we are able to defend our positions from Genesis to Revelation. It takes work. I'm just going to tell you. It takes a lifetime. It takes engaging with the crucial resource that we'll talk about here in just a moment. But you got to own it yourself. Man, I am not pacing myself. I got three services this morning. (laughs) Number two, uncompromisingly share it. Oh, listen, I know we live in a litigious society. Did I say, is that the right word? I think so. People might sue you, you might lose your job. And we got to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. That is true. But uncompromisingly share this confession. Because what does it say? It's the confession that is true hope. Listen, every human being is looking for hope. Every one of them. No matter how emo they are, see kids, I'm relevant. No matter how they may put up the front on social media that they've got it all put together, everyone is looking for hope. This is hope. So share it. Share it in your class. My my daughter's going to a, 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 a university that is a... Christian university, but it's a missional university, so there are unbelievers all around. There are professors that are unbelievers. And so she's learning this, that in class, if you hear something that doesn't match up with the confession, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, but share it. Share it in your classroom. Share it in your workspaces. Share it in your neighborhoods. Uncompromisingly share it. That's what it means to hold fast, unwavering. Number three, remember the goal. The goal is not to win. That's my quote from Nacho Libre. I'm tired of losing. I want to win. 
That's a gift to you all at 8 o'clock. I know, I know some of you are tired. <laughs> the goal is not to win, it's to equip. Remember my supervising professor of my doctorate told me that, Jeff, remember, the goal as you're teaching your congregation biblical theology is not to win. The goal in my study and preaching of Revelation is not to get you to see it the way that I see it. My, my goal is to show you how I got there and equip you in that to take a robust path to get to a place where you believe what you believe. Remember, the goal is not to win, but to equip. This is what it means to hold fast, unwavering to the confession. But, but, but here's the question, friend. This is the gift, isn't it? It's a gift to know no matter who's elected next November, this is going to be true. But do you believe it? You know, and it's not enough to just say you believe it. What do the patterns of your life show? Do you believe it? But the answer to that question requires help, doesn't it? Which brings me to number three. The gift of Christ is the body of Christ, so we need to engage with this crucial resource. Engage with this crucial resource. I hope you've been convinced, if you've been coming to ascend for any stretch of time, I hope, hope you've been convinced of this statement, the Christian life was never intended to be lived individually. It never was. In fact, there's a phrase that you'll see twice occurring in these two verses. Look at the text. You see one another. It's a Greek term that is one word. And when we see it in the New Testament, and it is translated one another, it, the majority of the time signifies the local church. So that's, that's a little fun thing to do. Here's a journey. Read the New Testament and look for the phrase one another. And when you do, know that the author is typically referring to the local church. Now, when I say that, I know every one of you have different experiences with church. There are varied traditions, varied denominations. Some of you that I'm looking out on this congregation are pastor's kids. Some of you have gold standards. In your experience, you compare every experience with church to that experience. Others of you have hurt with church. So, so when I use this phrase, one another, I, I know we bring all of those traditions, all of those experiences to this topic of church. But let's actually let verses 19 through 25 explain to us what God's intention is with church. Here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. It's a community of brothers and sisters, verse 19, who are cleansed by the blood of Christ, verse 22, who are committed to stirring up love and good works with each other. We'll explain that more here in just a moment. Because we were never intended to do this on our own. That's church. Did you notice it didn't say anything about the amount of time for a service? Didn't talk about style of worship music. Didn't talk about whether you have bulletins or QR codes. Didn't talk about Sunday school versus small group. Didn't talk about kids' ministry curriculum. This is church. And so what was happening with the original audience? Well, look at verse 25. The habit of some 
was to not engage with church. The word habit is a very interesting one. It means a pattern of behavior, behavior that's more or less fixed by tradition or genuinely, generally sanctioned by society. Now, two words in that quote are important, tradition and society. So what was happening in the original audience is that both their tradition, Judaism, and society, the Roman Empire, were influencing Christians to not engage with God's design for church. Now, in the original context, the society would discriminate against Christians if they prioritized church. In the Roman Empire, life was busy. And so the good things of a busy life crowded out the engagement with church. Huh, do you see any parallels to the 21st century? The original audience was not unlike our culture today. So, so, so what is it that the author of Hebrews is encouraging people to do to resist the habits of these patterns from tradition and society? First of all, verse 24 says, let us consider. That's an awesome phrase because it's talking about multiple people, isn't it? And the us are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you claim to be a brother and sister in Christ, this command is for you. It says to consider, investigate, evaluate intentionally. What? Well, the stirring up. The word stirring up has both a positive and a negative context. The negative context is found in Acts chapter 15 with Paul and Barnabas. You remember that? Paul and Barnabas had an engagement with each other that led to negative action. And the negative action was that they split up. But, but here's what it means to stir up. It is interaction that leads to action. It's interaction that leads to action. So listen, if you want to be engaged with the church, you've got to have interaction that leads to action. And what is that action that our engagement with one another is intended to be? Well, it's love, agape love, and then verse 24, good works, which Ephesians 2.10 says is the living out of our Christian life. This is what church is. And what church is, is the gathering together. Do you see that right there in the text? It's the Greek term, epi-synagogue. Together, assembly. It is at a minimum what we're doing now, but this is not the limitation. It is all activities of engaging with Christians in a way that stirs one another up within the context of the local church to love and good work. So how do we apply this? By realizing what the habit of not doing it provides. Number one, we're missing out. You're missing out on this tremendous resource. Number two, the New Testament says it's unnatural. If you're truly a follower of Christ, it is unnatural to not engage with the local church. And then number three, it is the tool for enduring. If you want to be able to endure the dumpster fire of our culture around us, if you want to be able to endure and to stay faithful to the following of Jesus Christ, the church is the local resource for that which really sets us up well for the study of Revelation next week, doesn't it? 